Hey, if you have your Bibles this morning, I would like for you to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6. Um, and as you're turning there, I just want to say thank you to the church, uh, the staff. We had a great time in Dallas and picked up a lot of uh, new ideas, but also more than anything, just was able to spend some time together and be refreshed. And uh, that's always, uh, always good. Uh, so if you're there, uh, just want to read a few verses out of this, uh, and then we'll kind of jump right in. And we're wrapping up the series today, and today I have the privilege of preaching on economic chaos. And uh, don't worry, I am not asking for your money today, so you can all take a deep breath, and uh, we're just going to talk about, about what this world is, is coming to and, and, and things like that. So uh, verse 6 says this, Now godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing with these, we shall be content. Uh, I would say we live in a country, though, where that's not the case. Um, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. There is a warning uh, from Paul to, to Timothy. Keeps going, for the love of money uh, is a root of all kinds of evil for which some have strayed from their faith and their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. But you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life, to which you are also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I urge you in the sight of God who gives life to all things, and before Christ Jesus, who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep this commandment without spot, blameless, until our Lord Jesus Christ appearing, which he will manifest in his own time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we come to you this morning, and God, we are thankful for your word. And God, we're thankful that it uh, is definitely given to us for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, uh, Lord, for uh, encouragement. And God, today I pray that uh, all of those things would come forth out of your word. Uh, God, I have no agenda today just to preach your word, just to preach the gospel. Uh, God, I pray that every heart in this room... Uh, Lord, would be tuned in to you, uh, your presence. Uh, God, I pray for the critics in the room. God, I pray for the ones in the room who have come expecting something great to happen today. God, I'm thankful for what you've already done and absolutely allowing all of those seniors to reach this uh, great milestone in their life. And Lord, the, the world and the life that is ahead of them, that they'll go out and be lights in darkness. Uh, God, I'm thankful today that we have you. What else really matters? But God, help us to live in this crazy, chaotic world as lights in darkness, even when times are uncertain and things are crazy. Uh, God, we lean on you. And Father, we give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. I wasn't alive in 1930. I'm sure most everybody in here wasn't uh, during the time of the Great Depression. But I do remember in 2008 uh, what took place in this country 
And I know many people in here remember that. Probably some of you were hit very hard. Uh, people lost a lot in those times. But really what happened on that day, uh, in essence, is a God died. And I didn't say the God, I said a God. Uh, we worship and idolize money. Uh, material things, wealth. Uh, we tell our kids to go to school not based on many times on we want you to go find something that God is, is giving you a passion for uh, so that you can live out a life for the gospel and that you can be used by him. It's oftentimes pick something that will set you up financially secure so you don't have to worry in your life. And that's kind of our approach. But in 2008, that shifted for many people uh, because all of a sudden the thing that was worshipped is no longer around. Uh, so much uncertainty, things crashing, people losing. Um, and what, what happens is, is we just get locked in uh, to idolizing things that, at the end of the day, God gave us for our good, for our help, but not to idolize. And I just want to say this in the front, because I know some people are like, oh, he's going to come down. I am not here to preach against wealth. I am here to preach for God, though. And I'm here to just lay out what God has laid on my heart during these times uh, people whose lives are angled toward money, wealth, and material gain. People who calculate, calculate their worth uh, by money, their success, and ultimately their security. What we know is the Bible tells us as believers not to what? Lay up treasures here on this earth. Because I don't, the old adage is, is you don't see U-Hauls behind hearses. Uh, so our call is to lay things up in heaven. Uh, where moth and rust and all those things uh, cannot destroy. And so we're told to put our faith in Jesus Christ because that's where we find our significance, that's where we find our security, that's where we find all of those things. And there is one fact that we do know money has played, continues to play, and will play in an essential role in future events. Money has always been important in the past, and everything connected with economics is increasingly important today, and money will dominate our world even more in days to come. But as we've seen in the past, and not just in our own nation, but just even more recently, what happened in Venezuela, just literally overnight, the economy crashed and chaos ensued, completely uh, catastrophic, uh, what has happened in that nation. Why? Because people put so much emphasis on things that fade away and not on things that matter. So what happens in America where today we are facing inflation, gas is high, you go to the grocery store, you just about can buy a new car for what one week's of grocery uh, cost, and things are crazy, and it's amazing to see people who are believers, they get shaky. And I'm not saying concerned, but just completely shaky over the fact that gas goes high, and I get it, trust me, it hits my pocketbook too, but where does your security lie? Where does your satisfaction lie? And that's what Paul is telling Timothy here. Paul is telling Timothy, warning him, there's going to be people to come, they're going to be false teachers, they're going to use the gospel to get gain, because ultimately the whole thing boils down to greed. And that's what it boils down to. And we can sit all across this room and say, well, you know, that doesn't affect me. No, it affects all of us in essence. And so what I want to do today is I want to talk about three things about economic chaos. And we know that 
there's this system that's being put in place, um, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. We know that there's uh, the, the, the thought and the, the actually putting into practice a cashless society. Uh, if you don't believe me, uh, last Friday night we were in Tupelo at the Bank Corp South Center seeing Casting Crowns and very much written at every, uh, what am I trying to say? Concession stand. Concession stand, thank you. Just lost it for a second. Cashless. That's what it said. Cashless. We know that there's a big push on Bitcoin, cryptocurrency, and you guys are way smarter than me. I don't even know what any of that means. We know that at the end of times that there's going to be one that rises and, and he's going to force people or, or give people the choice to, to take the mark of the beast. It, it just money overall plays a huge part in where we're at today and where we're headed. But I want to focus more today on how do we respond as believers? How do we uh, handle ourselves whenever this comes? So the first thing is, what's the cause of the economic chaos? Well, in verse 10, you see it very plainly. Paul tells Timothy, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Now, we're going to spend quite a bit of time in that verse, okay? I'm going to, as we say in seminary, exegete that passage. And we're going to look at it a little bit. And we're going to see what all can really come out of one verse if we take our time and we pay attention to it. The cause of economic chaos, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, one of the biggest reasons is we're serving the wrong God. The love of money, meaning extreme greed for wealth and material gain. What does it mean to say the love of money? It's a condition of the heart that feels more security, more pleasure, and more hope in earthly possessions than it does in the fellowship and faithfulness of God. Matthew 5 through 7, the greatest message ever preached by the greatest preacher that ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus spoke of one idol in the Sermon on the Mount. And you know what that idol was? That idol was money. And he spent some time there. And this is one of the most profound things that I think any of us need to listen to. We all need to wrestle and struggle with this verse. In Matthew 6, 24, Jesus says this, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve two masters. The Message Bible says it like this. You can't worship two gods at once. Loving one god, you'll end up hating the other. Adoration of one feeds contempt for the other. You cannot worship God and money both. And notice what it says. It says no one can. No one can. It is all inclusive. There are no exceptions here. You can't say, well, I can balance it out. No, the Bible says that no one can serve Two masters. Now, what does it mean to serve? Well, the word serve is simply to be a slave. The word here, julevo, in the Greek means to be a slave. And then you have the word master, which means lord, and it implies absolute ownership. That doesn't mean that God gives you 10% to go serve money. It doesn't mean that he says, hey, I'm going to take 80% of you, and I'm going to give 20% to do whatever you want to with. 
If Jesus Christ is your Savior, He is your Lord, and He is your Master, and you are only to be a slave, as the Bible says, or to serve Him. So how is it that we serve money? Because money doesn't sit around with a little mouth and tells us, tell us what to do. I mean, it doesn't say, well, hey, you need to do this, or you need to do this. What it means to serve money is to calculate all of your behaviors, all your life, to maximize what it can give you, always asking what benefits can you get from money that would be serving money. What does it mean to serve God, that He is your treasure, He is your everything, that everything that is part of your life is filtered through your relationship with Jesus Christ? And this is as black and white as it gets. I love talking to those people in Scripture that are black and white until it comes to something that kind of affects them, and then all of a sudden it gets gray really quick. But this is black and white. There is no gray area here. No one can serve two masters. And then he even repeats it, and he says, no one. You cannot serve two masters. So when your pursuit of money, and again, uh, these messages are always fun because people are like, man, you're like telling us we can't do this. No, the love, the love, your affection for money is the root of all evil. So here's the deal. When you pursue, when your pursuit of money, wealth, material gain supersedes your devotion to God, money is winning the battle of affection in the war of allegiance. Whenever that's all you think about, whenever that's what drives you, whenever it's not about the kingdom of God, whether it's about whatever your bank account says, your retirement account says, how many vehicles you own, how big your house is, if that is what you pursue, if that's what drives you, then God has lost your affection. Proverbs says it like this, and I love this. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me my own, my, only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and dishonor the name of God. Give me just what I need. Second thing is seeking the wrong kingdom. In the same message, Jesus preaching here at the Sermon on the Mount, he uses his term, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Why would Jesus say that? Why would Jesus say, hey, I want you to seek my kingdom first? Because Jesus knows that we have the propensity to seek our kingdom first. He knows that above all, we want to build our own kingdom. And I believe that God created in each of us the ability and the desire to build. Throughout history, we see it. We see great ability to build. We see uh, all of these great uh, places. You take the pyramids and you take just the structure and all the things it took to build something so massive. And I think throughout all of history, all of the great things that people have built, but we base everything on building. We build families, we build careers, we build relationships. It just goes on and on and on. We build, we build, we build, and I believe it's put in us uh, to build. And for the most part, we're good at it. For the most part, we're really good at building what our passion is, building what really means a lot to us. And in this thought, every person desires to build their own kingdom. 
And I say that because social media is the My Kingdom platform. You can build your kingdom ever how you want it to look. You can make your life look so grand that people are jealous of you and envy you, and they look and they go, man, I just wish I had their life. And it's constantly about building a kingdom so many times, and we base it on how many people commented, how many people liked, how many followers, how many this, how many that. And it's because we have taken the, the, the way God wired us to build, and instead of seeking and building his kingdom, we spend a lot of time building our kingdom. And what the context of Matthew 6 there is that don't worry about your life. He says, even he feeds the sparrows and the lilies of the field. They, they don't even worry. He's saying, hey, don't worry. Basically, in 2022 language, God's got this. And I'll tell you, this illustration happened while we were in Dallas. Davis and I were in our hotel room one night after we'd all got finished and we were flipping through the channels and... Uh, a word of faith preacher came on. I won't say his name just in case some of y'all may like him. I, I don't know. I hope you don't, but hope you pray for him. I just told Davis, I said, stop. Let's see how long it takes him before he starts talking about wealth. And about two minutes in, he has butchered one of the most beautiful passages in all of the Gospels. Jesus taking the scroll of Isaiah in Luke 4, 18 simply saying the spirit of the lord is upon me and he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor and he went on and the guy says this he says that verse doesn't mean salvation and of course immediately i wanted to bust the tv but i didn't want adrian to get the cost on her credit card for my busting the tv so i, I refrained but i was like wow this is what he said he said, there is no reason Jesus came and Jesus died so that nobody on earth should have to be poor. There is no reason why anybody on earth should be poor. That was his message. Whatever you want, you ask God for it and he'll give it to you. And he's just pounding this passage and taking it out of context. And I said, Davis, let's just look and see what he's worth. Seven hundred and sixty million dollars that he's amassed by using the gospel as gain. And he's sitting there going, you don't have to be poor. And I know some of y'all are thinking, well, I'm not a word of faith preacher. I'm not a preacher at all. So really, what's this have to do with me? Here's the principle of that is once we start seeking our kingdom over God's kingdom, once we start building our kingdom over God's kingdom, there is a sense that comes over us that says, I got this, I no longer need you, Lord, and his righteousness that he tells us to seek becomes a foreign land to us. Why? Because we seek the wrong kingdom. And then ultimately, we succumb to the wrong system. And I believe systems are important. Uh, society is built on systems. Organization is, they're built on systems to help uh, operate effectively and efficiently. And as I was thinking about this, believe me, the enemy has a system too. Enemy systems called the cosmos, and it is powerful, it is effective, it is manipulative, and it is successful. And in this verse, you can see in action it says, 
What's it say? Some have strayed away. In verse 10, some have strayed away. What, what happened? They succumbed to the wrong system. And the word strayed simply means they've been misled and they no longer believe what truth is and they are believing what is false. And in this system, John 10, 10, Jesus warns us of it because he says, hey, the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And I just had to thinking about that. I was like, can't you see uh, Satan, the, the, the devil, uh, standing there with all of his demons? And he's like, hey, y'all, because we're real big on vision and mission statements. And, you know, you want to make sure your mission statement is clear, concise. It's easy to remember, quick to, you can just kind of spout it off. And I can just see the enemy kind of going, and this is metaphorically speaking, okay? I don't think he maybe literally did it, but this is metaphorically speaking. Boys, our number one mission is to kill, steal, and destroy. And that's what he came to do. He came to steal, kill, and destroy. And how does he do it? He does it by alluring us. He does it the same way in the garden when he pops in in the garden or how he walks in and he just said, did God say? And he takes things that God has meant for our good and he allures us into making that an idol. That's what he does with money. He takes money that I believe that is for the good. We have to have it. We have to use it to pay bills, to eat, to do those things. And he allures us into thinking that we can build some kind of kingdom and that that kingdom is where we find our identity. And that's the way he works. If you don't believe me, he jumped right in on Jesus. Matthew chapter 4. I mean, he, he jumped in, and in the last temptation that he did, he said, hey, he took him up, and he says, hey, if you'll bow down and worship me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of this world. And I've always thought, man, what an idiot. I mean, Jesus created all. It's already his. He's just letting you be in it for a season. But Jesus said, no, that, no. It's not what I'm going to do. And then I think about Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. How the Bible says that, that they sold a part of their land, and when they sold their land, it says he kept back part of it, and then he gave the rest. And where Ananias messed up is, number one, nobody told him to sell it. But number two, he kept back part of it, and he lied. Why? Because he had fallen to the wrong system. He had fallen into greed. He got to look, and he's like, man, I made a lot of money on that land. It started out, I was going to sell it and give it to the church, but I made a lot of money on it, so man, I'll just give the church this, and I'm going to keep this. And the thing is, is he's the one that made that decision. Because Peter asked him, he says, and then I said, why? Why did you lie to the Holy Spirit? Because when it was yours, nothing was wrong. But you've made the decision to lie. So we see how the enemy works his system. And I just want to say this, we don't believe this is important. 38 parables in the Gospels, and Jesus speaks of money 16 times. And he seems to make it clear that here's the problem. Not money, but the love of money is because it competes with our affection for God. It's the main competition over our hearts. Money isn't the root of all kinds of evil. It's the love of money. Money in itself is not bad. Money in itself is not good, but it holds the most potential to being a substitute for God. It is the chief competitor of our affection, our time, our life when it comes to the relationship with our Savior. And so the second thing is the effect of economic chaos. 
So if, you, if you're serving the wrong God, if you are seeking the wrong kingdom, if you're succumbing to the wrong system, this is how it plays out. First thing is people become addicted to money. It's amazing that we'll talk about addiction on a lot of things. People addicted to drugs, people addicted to porn, people addicted to alcohol, people addicted to this. But when it comes to some of these type things, we kind of let it play. But here's the definition of addiction. It is the fact or condition of a being addicted to a particular substance, thing, or activity. Mark chapter 10, rich young ruler. He comes in. And I believe with all my heart, he was sincere as he could be. I believe he came in and he just simply said, I want eternal life. I want it. Man, what, what do I have to do to inherit it? What, what, Jesus, tell me, please tell me what I have to do. And Jesus looks at him and he says, man, I need you to sell everything that you have and give it to the poor and come and follow me. And the Bible even says that Jesus loved him. What do I do? Sell everything I have so that I can inherit eternal life? Do I do that or do I hold on to it? And the Bible says he walked away sorrowful. Now I want you to think about this just for a moment. That has to be one of the most sobering, sad passages of scripture in Mark's gospel and don't take this wrong way again I'm not saying that this is uh, wealth is bad but what would it profit a man if he gained the whole world and lost his soul this is exactly what happened to that young man in Mark chapter 10 is exactly what's going on with many people in the 21st century and those who desire the Bible says in, in, in verse 9 of chapter 6 here says those who desire to be rich fall into temptation they fall into a snare they fall into a trap and the Bible says this is this is kind of the way it works just an illustration for you the constant desire for more and nicer and newer and better is like drinking seawater if you're thirsty you look at seawater and think man that would be good for me you don't realize that seawater has a high concentration of salt so the more you drink the thirstier you, get, you become. The more you drink, the sooner you dehydrate. And if you keep drinking, you will get headaches, dry mouth, low blood pressure, rapid heartbeat, then eventually you'll become delirious, go unconscious, and die. It's amazing. You see water and think, that's what I need. But as you drink it, unbeknownst to you, you are killing yourself. And this is a picture of materialism. The more you go after money and possessions, the more they will kill your soul and you won't even realize it's happening. And God is saying materialism is deceptive, dangerous, and ultimately deadly. God just said in his word that the desire for riches plunges people into ruin and destruction. Second thing is accumulation of wealth. Look in Luke chapter 12. I mean, you got the picture of the rich. The Bible calls it the rich fool. Only place in Scripture, as far as I've known in my years of study, that God actually calls somebody a fool. And how would you like that title? You're known throughout all of history in the number one selling book of all time to be the fool. That's not the kind of title I want. But it says that a ground of a certain man yielded plenty, and then it says he thought within himself. 
So it yielded plenty. Man was already wealthy. He thought within himself, what am I going to do? So he says, I'm going to tear down barns, and I'm going to build bigger barns. But here's what this man soon learned, that that wasn't the source of his security. Plenty of good laid up for many years, he said. If I can save enough, accumulate enough, I won't have worries. But what happens when the economy collapses? What happens if you lose your job? I've shared the story up here before about when I was in seminary and really not having any idea how we were going to pay for it, I'd actually dropped out for a little while. And Tiffany's dad had a friend of his that, that, that found out about our story. And this man, to make a long story short, comes to me and through about three months of conversation, he was a very wealthy businessman in Memphis, and he comes to me and he says, hey, I, I and some friends of mine want to pay your way through seminary. He says, I don't want to just pay your school. I want to pay your house. I want to pay your car. I want to pay your living for your family. He says, I want you to focus on seminary. And I was like, wow. And so we agreed to do that. And you know when this was? This was right smack dab in the middle of 2008. And at the end of 2008, the money that they told us they were going to give us stopped coming in. Because these men had lost hundreds of thousands of dollars when the stock market crashed. And I just remember feeling hopeless because I'm like, God, I don't know what I'm going to do. And I remember calling the man that, that did it for me. And he, he, he told me, he said, Matthew, he said, don't put your trust in us. He said, man, we have great intentions and we want to help you. He said, but you got to put your trust in God because he's the one that called you. And can I tell you something, man? The well dried up there, but God dug another one because we never went without a meal. And we gloriously finished seminary, thank the Lord. I want to tell you something, man. You cannot let your security be on your wealth. When we look at money as our security, it becomes our God because we have put our hope and our dependence in it. The, Man also found out it wasn't his source of satisfaction. He thought to himself, I can accumulate more, I can have more, I can build bigger barns, I will eat, I will drink, and I'll be merry. But here's a question. Would his barns have ever been big enough? Because he would have not been satisfied. He would have had to build bigger barns. Ecclesiastes 5.10 says this, If you love money... You will never be satisfied. If you long to be rich, you will never get all you want. The more you feed it, the hungrier you will become. And then it's not our source of significance. His identity was his stuff because the Bible says it. He says, hey, this is the, the, the ground of a certain rich man yielded much. So here's his, here's his significance. This was his identity. And oftentimes, especially where in the part of the world, in the Western world we live in, we judge our worth by our net worth. I'm going to say that again. We judge our worth or we judge other people's worth by their net worth. And I just want to say this. By man's standards, my grandfather probably one of the poorest people in Fayette County. Aubrey Watkins. 
retired from two jobs, never made over minimum wage. In his last days here on this earth, he carried garbage out at Fayette Academy. Never had much, but always had plenty. Never had money, but he fed more people in Fayette County than I guarantee the HUD ever fed. And when he died, the line from the graveyard to Somerville, we buried him on Henry Drive right off Feathers Chapel Road in a little cemetery at Mars Chapel where most of my family's buried. And from that church all the way back to the courthouse in Somerville was his funeral procession. His identity was not in what he had because he was just a little frail man. But his identity was locked in on Jesus, man. If you wanted to talk about Jesus, you just go find him. I just wonder today, and I've thought about this honestly because he was at Fad Academy when I was graduating, but he was set out on the little bench in front of the school. The school was getting out, and he would sit, and he would talk to students. And in those days, I took it for granted, but I've often thought to myself, how many people come to know Jesus because he was willing just to sit and have a conversation with them? And I say that to say our, our identity can't be, and our significance can't be in what our or your worth can't be in what our net worth is. Because you know what happened to the rich fool? You know what his bigger barns got him? A nice funeral. That's it. He got him a nice funeral. Well, my dad was working, uh, before he was full-time in ministry, he was working at a company in Memphis at a chemical plant, and his boss used to make fun of him all the time because he's a preacher. And he'd just laugh at my dad, and he would tell him that, oh, just what you're doing is just nothing to it. And my dad would turn down opportunities to be uh, promoted because he wanted to serve Jesus, and he wanted to, to, to minister for Jesus and pastor and, and do those things. And the guy just made fun of him, made fun of him. And he told my dad, he says, man, I can't wait to retire. He says, I'm basically going to eat, drink, and be merry. And right after the guy retired, they called my dad and said, hey, can you do his funeral? The day that he walked out to his mailbox and pulled his first retirement check out, he fell dead two steps from his mailbox. And he has spent his whole life accumulating wealth instead of building the kingdom of God. John Tillotson, a Dutch Theologian says this, He who provides for this life but takes no care for eternity is wise for a moment, but a fool forever. And then we think about adoration of the world. Why do we long for people's approval and adoration? Why, why do we spend so much time wondering what people care? I love what Dr. Adrian Rogers said. He said, it's about time we stop buying things, with, uh, buying things we don't need with money we don't have to impress people we don't like. What a wise man. Why in the world would we choose to just continually want the adoration of man? And it all comes down to greed. It just comes down to it. That's the, that's the root of it. If you think about it, Judas sold Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And I understand that that was God's plan from the foundation of the world. I get all the theology behind that. But on a very practical level, the man sold Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. 
And we can say, man, Judas was a traitor. He was, in, he was dumb. Why, why would anybody do that? And I'm afraid that sometimes we sell him out for far less. It's greed. And what we do know is this world is changing and we are living in a time that we know is setting up for what we call the last days or the end times. And you can look these ideas of chips and cashless society and all those things. For Christians, it should be exciting because you know what it's doing? It's pointing to one thing, and that's Christ's return. That's what it's pointing to. We should be excited that we've come to this place, that we've come this far. That is pointing to him and the driving force behind everything that the Antichrist is going to do. And I don't care where you sit on that, but the bottom line is that he's going to come, he's going to rule, and he's going to be there. And it's going to all be built around greed. It's going to all be built around money. And people are going to fall for it. But before that even happens, how do we respond? How, how do we as believers respond? And I'm going to get through this quick. Believers must live steadfast. We live unmovable. The Bible says right there in 10 that we lay hold on the things that are in this word. It is our greatest weapon. How do we do this? We live in the grace of God on the promises of God. I love what Paul said to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 8, 1 and 2. He says, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. They were broke, hungry, and they were still given to the cause of Christ. And I've heard it my entire existence that the grace of God will not lead you where the grace of God can't keep you. And I know today that the reason we can stand steadfast is because of the grace of God. And believers must live secure. If you look in verse 11, he says, But, O man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness, fight the good fight of faith, lay hold on eternal life, He's given us instructions on how to overcome this, to which you were also called and have confessed a good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Believers must live secure. Just let me ask you a question this morning. All across this room, is Jesus enough? I ask that question oftentimes because we treat him sometimes like he maybe he's not. You remember John 6 whenever... They were there, and the disciples were looking around, and all these people had set up, all these people had, had lined up and sat on this hillside, and the disciples were there, and they were freaking out. They are like, Jesus, how are we going to feed all of these people? How are we going to take care of them? They have followed you, and they're, they're hungry, and, and how are we going to do it? And Jesus got his hands, listen to me, on two pieces of fish and five pancakes. Don't think it was a loaf of bread. It was a pancakes, what it was. A poor man's lunch is what it's known as. But when it got in his hands, and it says he blessed it. See, I think what some of us need to do is just get in his hands. 
We, we, we just need to put everything we have in his hands. And the Bible says that he turned to heaven and he blessed it. And when they got finished feeding everybody and they were full, 12 baskets left over. Is Jesus enough? If the sparrows don't worry, if the lilies don't fret, then shouldn't we trust him? I heard an old preacher a long time ago in Mississippi named LaVon Boatner. I'm pretty sure he's probably with the Lord now because he was at least 80-something when I heard him preach 20 years ago. And he was preaching a message called, God is on my side. And he said, the birds are singing, the bills are paid. God is on my side. Is Jesus enough? Believers must live satisfied. Philippians 4, not that I speak in respect of want, my grandfather's favorite verse. For I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased. I know how to abound everywhere and in all things. I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. And I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me. The, most, the verse taken most out of context in all the world. I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me. doesn't mean that you're going to win a football game. Doesn't mean you're going to hit a home run. Doesn't mean you're going to kick a field goal. It doesn't mean that you're going to do this or this. It means that in whatever state you find yourself in, whether little or a lot, it is the strength of Christ that gets you through it. So we have to live satisfied. Paul, in the last few verses of this passage in Timothy, he points to Jesus. He just points to Jesus. He says, hey, I urge you in the sight of God. He's going to listen to me, Timothy. I urge you in the sight of God who gives life to all things. And before Christ Jesus, who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep this commandment without spot, blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ appearing, which he will manifest in his own time. He who is blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and I love verse 16 who alone is immortality dwelling in an approachable light, unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Can that person satisfy you? And that's the question. And here's the thing in closing. He intends to relocate the roots of our joy in his grace rather than our goods, in his mercy rather than our money, and in his worth rather than our wealth. And in closing today, as the worship team comes, I want to read an, an excerpt out of a book called God's at War. It's a book written by Cal Eidelman, and I read it many years ago when it first came out. And there's a chapter in that book called The God of Money. This is what it says The God of Money was almost irresistible. He spun tales of sports cars, luxury homes, and all the good things he was going to buy for us. Yes, we had heard the old refrain that money can't buy happiness, and we knew that. We had seen what it had done to people over and over. But we were going to be different. We would know how to use the money without letting it use us. We didn't want to buy happiness. We just wanted to rent a little pleasure. But somewhere it all went wrong. Somehow the God of money became a slave driver. He kept us running, following him, trying to keep him from getting away. We followed the green brick road until we longed to rest. 
We put our hope in what we might find at the end of the rainbow. We thought money would provide us with security, significance, and some measure of satisfaction. But strangely, even when we had money, we still In Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we come to you today. God, I'm thankful that all across this room, there are so many people that have chosen Jesus. God, we have allowed you to be the provider, the protector, deliverer for our souls, for our lives. And God, today I pray that we find ourselves in our affection and our allegiance toward you and you alone. God, that we see you as our security. We see you as, as, as Lord, our satisfaction. God, that we spend our lives building your kingdom. And God, help us to just trust you. Lord, that when things get shaky, when times are uncertain, when media is blasting everything out of the water, whenever prices go up, God, let us lean into you. God, help us to serve you and you alone, to give our full heart, soul, and mind to you. God, help us to walk in the light. God, I pray today for people maybe in this room, maybe who are listening, God, they don't know you as their personal Savior. God, they don't know what security is. They don't know what satisfaction is. They've never experienced true security, true satisfaction, and even true significance. But today, Lord, I know, as your word says, is the day of salvation, and right now, Lord, is the time. So God, I pray that you would, Lord, move in their hearts. God, that you would send the Holy Spirit, Lord, to interrogate their hearts, Lord, and captivate their minds, and that today, God, would be the day of salvation. Lord, we love you today, and God, we're thankful that you, according to 1 John, first loved us, that even while we were enemies, you came and died for us. And so, God, let us live in those moments. Let us live in the moments of grace let us live in the moments where you've already shown yourself faithful. Let us be reminded, God, that you're always near. God, let us stake our life on that, that you are faithful. And Father, we praise you today. God, we lift up your name today. God, we thank you for Jesus Christ and him making it all possible. God, we thank you. We love you. In Jesus' name.